Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down to verse 7. We won't have time to get the whole chapter, but the punch of the chapter is found in those seven verses. And in those seven verses, you have a real call to worship, a real sense of taking uh, what we do when we gather as a body, taking it seriously, a real reminder of the gravity that goes in when God meets man, and as Christians, we believe through Jesus Christ, what happens not just when we are individually reading our Bibles in the mornings, but when we gather on the Lord's Day. I think this passage um, is a great piece to remind us of our need for Christ, especially in worship. So as I read it, you think about, I'm trying to set the stage as I read it. You think about the lens. <clears throat> so I'm going to read it, and I want you to think, how does this apply in two ways? How does this apply to what I do on Sunday, how I approach the act of worship with the body of believers on Sunday? That's going to be the one big way. And then I think another way it's got to apply is our own individual. As we worship uh, by ourselves, maybe in the morning or the evening, whenever it is you've set aside a time when you spend time praying and you are taking in God's Word. So let this passage speak to those two areas. Let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't even know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase, and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. Father, I pray you would add your blessings to the reading of your word, and enlighten our hearts to embrace this truth, to love it, to live in a way that honors you, and is good for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody sitting here today, every one of us, each person has his or her own view and understanding of who God is and how God works. Your understanding of God may have something to do with your environment. Your understanding of God may have something to do with the way you were raised what part of the country you were raised in, what part of the world you were raised in. might be your upbringing. How you understand and relate to God has something to do 
with your own life experiences. What has happened to you in life? One of the reasons that I uh, do expositional preaching on Sundays, and one of the reasons we stay very close to the Bible is that it's, it's, it's really typical to let subjective things uh, enter into our life and then start to teach us things about God. We, we learn about God from what happens to us, and we forget to learn about God from what God's Word actually says. So one of the reasons that on Sunday mornings we take a book of the Bible and just go through it is because there we can systematically develop a biblical understanding of who God is, who I am in relation to God, and how I can know it. We want to be balanced. We want to be biblical. Sometimes I'm asked, how do you decide what you're going to preach on? Or, if I see someone... And they say to me, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And my answer is always, whatever's next in the passage. I mean, when I come in on a Monday morning, because I've laid out the book of Romans and assigned a Sunday to each text, I come in on a Monday morning, I look at the calendar and the passage that I laid out a year ago, and pick up that passage, and I go get my Bible, and I handwrite it all down, and start studying that passage. That's what I'm preaching on this coming Sunday. I do that because it's important that our people, that, that, that we get our information from the Bible and our, and our understanding of God from the Bible. Well, the passage in front of us confronts, I think, a real problem. Two fronts. One problem is that um, worship, the worship gathering can become a ritual. So that the ritual of worship coming in to worship without the actual fear of God, is completely meaningless. For you to come to church, because that's what you've been doing all of your life, to walk into a building with other people on a Sunday morning and go through what we would say, going through the motions of it, without a genuine fear of God, is absolutely meaningless. So, you'll notice the theme in the outline. We must approach God. We must approach God reverently, so we do that with reverence, but we must approach God reverently and through Christ. I think I've got four things. Does your outline have four things? I might get through all four. I'm not going to be like Brian. Don't look for 715. I might, I might just get through two of them tonight, just to show you that I can talk, I can filibuster just like anybody else. Let's go to, I'm not going to filibuster. Here's the first one, number one. We need to learn to worship God authentically. One of the things that, that we as a church and individuals, but collectively, we need to understand how can we worship God in an authentic way. Let's go to the text, verse one. Notice what the text says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't even know that they're doing evil. So, the preacher, that's Koheleth, is the writer, Solomon. You read it, it's called the preacher, the guy that wrote this. We believe it to be Solomon, but he is acting as the preacher now. And he says, in a full frontal assault, on an age-old problem, it's the dichotomy of people saying you believe one thing to believe rightly 
and then to not live rightly. To believe something and not live it. So if you want to use big words, you'd use it like this. Orthodoxy, orthodoxy, right belief. Orthopraxy, right practice. We are concerned at Hickory Grove, one of my major concerns is to make sure that our people are believing rightly. So we're going to put a heavy emphasis on orthodoxy. You go to our website, click on resources, you're going to find that there are all of these statements of faith. There are creeds that help us think about right belief. You're going to go look at the resources, the books that we put in place. They are there not so much to tell you to practice rightly, but to believe rightly because in order to practice rightly, you got to actually believe rightly. But if we believe rightly and don't practice rightly, So the, the preacher says, here's what I want you to do. You think about it now. You need to watch your... This, we use this. You need to watch your step. You've said that if you're a parent. You've said that. You need to watch your step, young man. I mean, it's the same phraseology, even the same intent. We need to think through. Guard your feet as you go to the time of worship. So what does it mean to guard your step? Well, a walking is like it is now. We even... It's a worn out... Cliche is doesn't his talk doesn't match his walk, walk to walk, talk to talk. Yeah. Uh, I don't use that cliche, but it does illustrate this that the idea is you need to keep a close watch on your life as you go to the house of God to worship. Far be it from us to ever want to be a church where people that that live like the devil on Friday and Saturday night can come in on a Sunday and not be bothered. We don't want to lower the bar so far down. There was a movement uh, in the modern church growth movement was, we want to do all we can to make people uh, not feel threatened when they come into church. So we want to make it feel like they are, they're part of the family, that they're part of us. So I would say that is a good intent. It's wrongly executed if you are lowering the bar where everybody feels comfortable. I want everybody to feel loved. I think every person that walks in the door should feel loved. But if they are outside of Christ, I don't want them to feel comfortable. I want them to feel like they're going to hell. I want them to know, hey, this is dangerous. When we take the Lord's Supper, I want people that are without Christ to have the elements passed by them and them not be able to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder. There are people inside Christ. There are those outside and you are outside. There should be some of this gravity that, that weighs in on us. I think this passage speaks some to that. I think it speaks mostly to uh, an approach to worship, to, to our demeanor. What goes on? How do you actually prepare for Sunday? And I would think, probably because of the world we live in, that there's not actually much preparation that goes on for coming in on a Sunday morning. I have to prepare because I'm going to be delivering a message. So my week, my week is centered around Sunday. My whole schedule in life is centered around Sunday. It's like a, it's like a dairy farmer. A dairy farmer 
must continue to milk the cows or they will get sick and die. You, you cannot skip. You can't go anywhere. I don't have a weekend. So when I go all the way through to Thursday, study on Thursday, tomorrow, I'll spend most of my day studying. Friday, I'll take the day and not try not to think about the sermon very much. I won't mess with it. Saturday, we'll get up, probably do a little exercise. Connie and I will have lunch. And then after lunch, I'll go into my, I have a little office at home, and I'll say, stay in that office, write the manuscript, go over and over and over it, and about 6.30 or 7, Connie will cook scrambled eggs and bacon. You know, I like to have, yeah, breakfast and supper. And so scrambled eggs and bacon, we'll have supper at 6.30 or 7. I'll sit down for a little bit, and then at 8 o'clock on Saturday, I'm going to bed. I'm in the bed. Um, 3.45 or so, the alarm goes off on Sunday, and I take, uh, for two hours, I'll go over the sermon, and I'll pray about the day and what's happening. And then about 6.45, a little before 7, we'll be here and start the day. I've just described what I do. This is very similar to what John, don't call me or John, 8.30 on Saturday nights. We're both. So what are you doing? Now, I do that vocationally, part of my obligation in life. I mean, this is what I do for a living. So I would just turn it around to you as part of your worship. How do you get ready? The preparedness. Notice what the text says. We are to to draw near to listen. To, that word listen, to draw near to listen, you, you, you're ready for obedience. That word listen is not just hearing, like listening to the radio passively, letting a song pass through your head. Uh, that word listen has the nuance of hearing it and then doing it. To, to, to receive instruction and then actually live it. Notice the phrase there. Um, in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near. To draw near to listen is better, look at that phrase, than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Why is he saying the sacrifice of fools? Because a fool is showing up, I'm going to put it in our language, a fool is showing up for church, he don't know why he's there, he doesn't believe anything he's doing, he's going through the motions, and it has no effect on his life. That's a fool. We might call it like this, uh, transactional worship. Transactional worship. You know what I mean when I say transactional worship? Here's what I mean. When you come to worship to get God to do something for you. So you've been diagnosed with a terminal disease and it scared you to death and you come to church because you don't want to die. Now, on one side, I think that's actually a pretty good reason to come to church. So I would applaud that. If that's what happens in your life and you're coming to church and you're seeking the Lord through that, you reacted rightly to the bad news you received. The other side is now you're trying to get something out of God through worshiping. Let me see if I can illustrate it nationally. Remember September the 11th, 2001, 9-11. Remember the Sunday following 9-11? The, the churches, including ours, I wasn't here because I was stuck in 
I was actually in the Grand Canyon when it happened and um, couldn't get an airplane out of Las Vegas, Nevada. So we rented a car and drove 44 hours straight. Yeah, three of us in a car just rotating. Just didn't stop. Stopped to get gas and came all the way home. Uh, we, we came to church the following Sunday, but the Sunday right after 9-11, people were packed in the church. It, now, on one side, that is a right and good reaction. You should. Something tragic happens. You want people to come to church. The other side is seeking something from God that you didn't care about beforehand. Maybe I can uh, illustrate it better like this. With transactional giving. Transactional, not just worship, transactional giving. So maybe you've heard people um, talk about tithing. You've heard it said like this, you'll never outgive God. Right? So I believe that to be true, that you're never going to give more than God. Right? Or if you'll give to God, he's going to give you so much more than what you gave him. If you're not careful with that kind of language, what happens is you've set it up that really it's just a good investment. You, you, you invest here, there's going to be a return on your investment, and the motivation then is I'm, I'm trying to get more by giving to God. That's the absolute wrong motivation to ever give to God. Completely wrong-headed. It is transactional. It is saying, I'm going to give to God because if I do, He's going to give me so much more. That's not why we give to God. We give to God out of gratitude, out of, out of thanksgiving, out of submission, out of humility, out of recognition of His goodness to us, as a response to His grace, as a reminder of His provision, as a reminder to us of our finiteness. So, we need to learn, learn to worship authentically. And one of the things I hope to happen more and more in our church as our church continues to grow in diversity, I feel like every single time I open my mouth, there it is in a public gathering, right? So as our church continues to grow in diversity um, and in age differences and ethnic differences, one of the things we've got to keep lowering is a hurdle for people to get over so that they can actually authentically worship. And we do that by raising the banner of Christ higher and the cultural stuff lower. Learn to worship authentically. Let me give you something else. Let me go to the, uh, verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> we not only learn to worship authentically, we need to learn to pray deliberately. Pray deliberately. Let me show it to you in verses 2 and 3. Notice what the text says. <clears throat> Do not be rash with your mouth. Okay, right there, that might be something good you want to underline in your Bible. Some of you in particular. Do not be rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So here now, the, the context is, we're standing before God. Verses 2 and 3, standing before God. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. So, get the picture right. Here is a picture of a man standing before a holy God, and he's in the act of prayer. Now notice that this actually is a call for caution. 
And this is not how we normally think. Look at the two words there in verse 2. You see those two words, rash and hasty? When, when we don't think clearly about prayer. So careless words in prayer are a reflection of, in this passage, are a reflection of the inner life. So the way that the preacher has written it is, don't forget God is in heaven, you are on earth. And he's written it like that to, rem to remind us of, of God's greatness and his glory, which sometimes we just, we just forget. Especially in the kind of churches, in, in the independent, um, in the free church, we are not a liturgical church. We did not come out of a traditional background as Baptists. We actually are not even in a denomination. You know, your church, Hicker Grove, we, we call ourselves Southern Baptists, but the truth is we're completely independent with no governance over the church. We're Southern Baptists because we give to the missions program through the Southern Baptists, but otherwise, completely independent. And so with that comes some great freedom. It also comes, uh, we don't have good rails on the road. And it's good for us to be reminded sometimes, as much as we'd like to talk about the imminence, the nearness of God, we should talk about that. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the actual transcendence of God. The, the, the awe of God. Here in, in our church, there's a premium. In most independent churches, there's a premium on, um, on spontaneity. And that the, the more spontaneous, the more the more it might seem like, well, is being led by the Spirit. And, and if somebody were actually to pray in public and write out their prayer and read it at a church like ours, a lot of people would look down on that person for reading a prayer. And it, just, it should not be. I mean, I, Sunday mornings at the 8 o'clock when I do the pastoral prayer, uh, this Sunday I'll do the pastoral prayer and confession. At the 11 o'clock I'll do uh, the time of confession. What was that? Okay, thank you. Y'all keep an eye on that, all right? Did y'all see it before? I'm not hallucinating. There's a big roach over there. If it jumps out, jump up and stomp, and I won't say a word. I'll just say, thank you, Mr. Phil, for doing that. Okay, yeah. So at the 8 o'clock, I'm going to do the confession, and I'll do um, also the pastoral prayer. And also at the 11 o'clock, I'll do just, just the confession. Do I have that right, John? Yeah. So John has laid all this out for me, what I'm going to be doing. I get my orders from John. Those prayers are not written down. They're not written down. But if they were written down, they would not be any less sincere. And I think that the... the the preacher is saying, we need to think through. What, what he's saying is, we need to have a thoughtful approach to how we actually talk to God. What are the things that we say to God? In my first church, you never knew, if you were a deacon in the church, you never knew when you were going to get called on to pray. So the ushers would take up the offering and then as they would, they would come back down with the plate, they'd put it down on the table in front of the, in, in front of the pulpit, 
And then when they're standing there, the song would end, and then the preacher would call on one of them to say the offertory prayer. And it would be spontaneous and almost always the same prayer. Same prayer. Same thing is true after church. Church is over, invitation is done, call uh, the, the singing stops, and then I'd call on uh, Mr. Wells. Mr. Wells, would you close us in a word of prayer? Now, Mr. Wells didn't know I was going to do that. And Mr. Wells, would you pray for us? If Mr. Wells was not prepared and he saw someone older close to him, he could say, uh, Preacher, I'll defer to Mr. Gay. To defer, would he just pass the buck down the line? So if you ever get caught in that position, remember, you can do this. I defer. Because there's not been much thought to it. And what the preacher is saying here in this text is, when we're praying, it is good and right to actually give thought to it. We engage our minds. God gave us that to think through what we're saying. Go ahead, Mr. Phil. Do it. You've got to move quick now. Uh, did you get it? All right. Well, this is high class church right here. Thank you, brother. You know, we have our cafeteria here, our school. They eat in here, and so that poor little bug came out to find a meal, and King Kong got him. Good job, Mr. Phil. Yeah, so when I uh, was in high school, I was saved in a Presbyterian church, and before I came to the Baptist church, I was part of Young Life. Anybody heard of Young Life? Young Life was really important uh, in my life uh, in the 11th and 12th grade, and we had all the meetings at my house, so it would be seven or 80 kids would pile into Young Life there, and it was really transformative to me. I really, there was a time in my life I thought I might actually go on staff uh, for Young Life when I was in high school. And one of the leaders there who was uh, helping me by way of discipleship, one of the leaders in college, he was uh, charismatic, like full-blown charismatic. And he wanted me to become charismatic. And so we were at Eastland Mall. This is where we do our discipleship. East, y'all remember Eastland Mall? Yeah. So we go to Eastland Mall, and we're out in the parking lot one day, and he was always barefoot. I don't know, he's kind of a hippie or something. I don't know. Oh, it didn't ever have any shoes on. It was barefoot. And uh, so he said, look, I want to teach you how to pray in tongues. And he just would start saying things that I didn't understand. And he would say, you have to disengage your, your mind to pray like this. And I often think about that when, I'm, when I come to texts like this that says just the opposite. You need to think through. There needs to be deliberation. When I... If I'm going to meet someone very important, if I'm going to make a speech somewhere, I'm going to think through what I'm going to say to that person. You guys remember the story in Luke of the prodigal son? Jesus tells the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Remember the lost son when he came to his senses? What happened to that young man? All right, and he's headed home. His dad's waiting on me, looking... And he's headed home. Do you remember what he's doing on the way home? He's, re- he's rehearsing what he's going to say. 
because he knows this is a dramatic event. I'm headed back, and, 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 and he's rolling this speech over in his head as he's headed home to see his father. Of course, his dad grabs him up and never gets to the speech. It was a beautiful picture of, of God's love bringing the prodigal back. But the, but the idea I'm trying to make is that, that there ought to be some thought. How much more should we think? Now, having said all of that, I'm not discounting the times when we actually cry out in prayer. And I'm not discounting when the, the story of the tax gatherer, remember Luke 18, when the, 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 the Pharisee and the tax gatherer, they go up to the temple to pray, two men go up to the temple to pray, one is righteous, one unrighteous, and the Pharisee says his prayer, thanking God that he's not like other people, and the tax gatherer, remember what he can do, what he prays? Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And so I'm not discounting that. In fact, I just started a book. I'm about halfway through. Uh, it's not in our bookstore yet because I just got it yesterday. This book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's by uh, Mark Vrogop. I don't know how to say his name. He's from the Netherlands or something. I don't know. Um, it's entitled Discovering the Grace of Lament. He's a pastor uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana, and his wife, uh, after going through several miscarriages, uh, she had a baby, a stillborn baby. They didn't know that the baby uh, wasn't living until right before they delivered it. And it, of course, shattered them. Um, and his approach, he has a big view of God, sovereign God. He, he wrote a book about lamenting. It's not something we think about very much. It's the idea of grieving in prayer, but with hope, not, be, not hope that things are going to get better. That's the difference. It's not, I'm hoping, believing that things are going to get better, there's a better day coming. It's this hope that God is sovereign and good, even though this is, this is heartbreaking. And I, uh, I'm about halfway through this book. I cannot recommend this enough. It'll be in our bookstores uh, next week or two. But it's been very, I mean, it actually informed the way that I, I was praying this morning uh, just for, for situations that I know are painful. Uh, and he just goes to Psalms of Lament. Psalm 13, Psalm 77, where the psalmist... Do you know that when you take 150 psalms, that there's actual one-third of those psalms are actually just lamenting, just weeping to the Lord without any real resolution other than we trust that God is good. So I would recommend that book to you. Uh, it's been good for me so far. As I think about prayer, I'd like to give you a couple of thoughts on prayer if you want to write them down somewhere. Just my own personal thoughts based on this. How do I think about my own prayer life? I'll give you some thoughts. When you pray, whether it's in public or private, but, but I'm thinking in public, don't pray to hear yourself talk. Don't pray to hear yourself talk. I'll give you something else. Um, don't pray to disseminate information. So if you find yourself saying this a lot, Lord, you know, and then just fill in the blank. 
Lord, you know that Sally shouldn't have gotten in that car with that guy. That you now are rolling over into gossip. You started it with, dear Lord, you're going to amen, but actually it's just gossip. So don't disseminate information. Um, and also don't sermonize if you're praying. Especially if you're praying with two or three or four or five or a hundred people. When you pray, you don't want to sermonize. What I mean is to preach the sermon to someone in prayer. So I'm directing it to God, but what I'm really saying is, she has a bitter attitude, Lord. So just don't, don't sermonize. Let me give you something else. Um, when you pray, it's good to use the Bible. Use the Bible. That book, um, Don Whitney's book, Praying the Bible, very helpful. Very helpful. To learn how to take Scripture and let that drive what you do in prayer. A lot of times I'll just take the passage, whatever it is, and just use it as the actual language of my prayer. Uh, you can do that in the Psalms. You can do that in the Epistles. One of the things that, that I've been helped by, I'm using Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7 right now. I'm trying to, to, to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. I've got Matthew 5. I'm in chapter 6. I'm about halfway done. And um, in chapter 5, you roll into chapter 6 with the Lord's, Lord's Prayer. It is a great template. So use the Lord's Prayer as a template. When I was in high school, played Independence High School, um, play football there. And that was like the prayer we prayed, the Lord's Prayer. So all the football players kneel down, say the Lord's Prayer, did it in unison, and then big shout, and we're off to the races. Nobody knew what they were praying. It's good that they were quoting the Bible. What would be more helpful to know is what do you mean when you say, Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. What are you saying that although he is in heaven, he's transcendent, the truth of the matter is, he is he's close, he's our Father. Your name is holy, and yet here I am. I want your will that's perfect in heaven, I want it done perfectly here on earth. So, so take the Lord's Prayer and make that your, your, your template. I would say um, to pray Trinitarian. I think it's good and right to pray in a Trinitarian way. I think it's right to say... To begin with Father, I say that because that's what Jesus told us to do. I think you pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. I think that is a great... Now, I, I also don't think those are hard rules. Like, in other words, I don't think you're sinful if you say, Dear Jesus. I think you're in great company doing that. I think it's a good and right thing to do. I also think if you're doing it publicly... One of the things that you do when you pray publicly, you not only are talking to the Lord, you are helping others that might not be as far along, helping people learn how to actually pray and to remember who our God is. God the Father, we approach through the Son, by the Spirit. So I think it's, it's not the only way to pray. I think it is a good way um, to learn doctrinally how to pray. I would say something else. When you pray, be simple, honest, forthright. Be simple, be honest, and forthright. As I'm memorizing the Sermon on the Mount, um, it's, when Jesus talks about prayer, <clears throat> he talks about the Gentiles. They think that they will be heard because of their many words. Don't heap up these phrases like the Gentiles. I think they'll be heard for the many words. And then Jesus says, 
Your, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, two resources I would point you to. Some of you already have one of these. One is the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision, it's a collection of Puritan prayers. We have that in the bookstore. That's been helpful to me just to think through how to pray categorically, where I put things in prayer, who I'm praying for. When I pray for someone, uh, their spiritual well-being, what am I praying for? If I'm asking God to help someone flourish, if I want them to be convicted by sin, that's been helpful. And strangely enough, anybody here used to be Episcopalian, Anglican? Yeah? Um, the common book of prayer, the Anglican, the original Anglican pre-1928 common book of prayer written by Thomas Cranmer, who was part of the English Reformation before the Anglican church went wayward. He snuck in there and gave them all this great theology. So there's a nice little resource. That's about prayer. That's two, two points. Let me get to a third. Mm, look, it's 720. I told y'all. So when you talk to Brian, you tell him that he actually is half the man. All right? No, don't tell him that. Don't tell him that. Don't get back. When it comes to theology, I'm actually half the man that, that Brian is. So I'll, I'll say that. All right. Number three. Let me go to number three. <clears throat> we need to learn to promise infrequently. Promise infrequently to, to not make a vow and not be able to pay it. Verses 4, 5, and 6. Let me show it to you. <clears throat> when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. And I would say, I don't have any pleasure in fools either, right? When, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you, you should vow not pay. So, you read the verse, and you see that the preacher is, he, what he's doing is, he's actually giving us to take an honest look at the one with whom we are dealing. So don't parse this too far down. Don't say, okay, what can I say and not say to God? What should I promise and not promise to God? What the preacher's doing is say, don't, don't forget who it is you're talking to. Jesus says the same sort of thing in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about not making an oath, don't make an oath by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Don't make an oath by the earth. It is the footstool for his feet. Don't make an oath by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't make no oath by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. I mean, you can Right? I mean, but you get the point, right? I mean, in other words, you're thinking, oh, I can do that. I've seen some of that. <clears throat> you, you get the point of what he's saying. You can't make one hair white or black. Therefore, let your statement be simply yes or no. And then Jesus adds this. Anything else, anything more than this is evil. So you bring that over here to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I, I think he's speaking to the holiness of God. Two things I'm thinking of, and one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Can you think of a time when someone made a rash vow in the Old Testament? Jephthah. It's the story of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. It is a terrible story. 
when Jephthah makes a vow that if he wins in this battle and God delivers, he would sacrifice the very first thing that came from his house. You go and read the story, and the story is that he has a beautiful daughter that he loves so much. She met him in celebration because she heard of his winning. He was struck with sorrow because of the vow he made. There's another one uh, closer to home in the New Testament. It's in, a, in Acts chapter 5. It's Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember there the false vows that they make? We need to, to remember that prayer is sort of a, of a vow. We, when we take on and recognize the lordship of Jesus, we have in some way made with humility a, a vow or seeking help. So when you're doing that, we do it with humility. When, when we make a promise to God, I think it, we should be honest about our shortcomings. We don't make excuses. I mean, that's what verse 6 seems to indicate. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, probably the messenger in the, in, in the temple, do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? I think there really are only a couple of times when we make vows. One major time for Christians would be when you make a vow to a spouse. If you make a vow to a husband or a wife, you should make that before the Lord. You should review it constantly. If you're a husband or wife, you should memorize Ephesians chapter 5 and live it and then pray for holiness. Because <laughs> you'll need it every bit. Learn to promise infrequently. Let me give you one more thing. And I'll close it down having used the entire time. In contradistinction to Brian Davis. <laughs> Number four, we need to learn to live circumspectly. Walk around yourself. Learn to live in such a way that we realize and think about the fear of God. You'll see it down there in verse, in verse 7. <clears throat> what a strange verse. For when dreams increase... And words grow many, there's vanity. So you kind of get the point. When there's all this talk, then it doesn't mean anything. But, here's the contrast. See the, the but. Contrast. God is the one you must fear. Fear God. So some people are not comfortable with hearing about we should be afraid of God. I would just say in the Old Testament and the New, there are several ways to fear God. Probably four or five there's emotional fear where you're struck to the degree you don't know what to say. John experienced that in Revelation chapter 1 when he saw the revealed Jesus and he fell to the ground. Remember that? Like a dead man. That's emotional fear. There's reverence, I think, or awe. The transfiguration when the disciples are there and they see the transfigured Jesus, it, it creates this, this sense of who is this? You get to the 23rd Psalm, you see the word fear. I will fear no evil. In the Bible, there's this fear of evil. If, if we fear God, we have to fear evil less. I think that the word fear um, leads to righteous behavior, piety. There are times in my life when, when I don't actually do or say something strictly because the fear of God. I fear God. I think that um, a good picture of that is, is Isaiah chapter 6. It's a, it's a passage I love. 
It's Isaiah and the temple, remember? The year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah lived 52 years. He died. Stability was gone. And in that time of instability, he actually had this, this vision of seeing the Lord. He, he had this window into heaven or something happened there in Isaiah 6, and it changed him. That brings us all the way around to Hebrews. And that's what I want to close with. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, just turn. To, I'm going to close with reading Hebrews 11 that reminds us that through Christ, through Christ, we can approach God with confidence and reverence. Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from, raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Our reward is we with great faith and trust can approach God through Jesus. We take over here in Ecclesiastes, reminded of who God is, our need to be reverent. We also wash that in the blood of Jesus, knowing that this God I fear is also this Father that loves me. Our God can be approached with reverence and joy through Christ. You join me as we pray. We'll be, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you that you have blessed us like you have. Thank you that we can approach you in our time of need through Jesus. We pray that you find us faithful, that you use us for glory and good that our mouths might be opened tomorrow to speak the gospel to someone that needs to hear how good you are. Lord, I pray that you would wake us up tomorrow morning in enough time to spend time with you and then bring us back here Sunday ready to worship collectively with this body of believers we love. Thank you for the fellowship you've given us. Go with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. You're dismissed.